0: We'll turn with me, please, this evening to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Again, I think I said this recently, but let me repeat myself. We've looked at almost the entire book of Matthew uh, here as a church. We just did it in piecemeal. Right? It would do sections earlier You know, like the first two chapters at Christmas and then looked at the last three chapters at Easter and then finally said, hey, let's fill in the middle chapter. So uh, chapter 25 really completes our study on the book of Matthew. Again, you might not have been here for all of those. They were somewhat out of order. Uh, But as we finish up this chapter, we will, as a church, have studied uh, all of Matthew's gospel together. So let me tonight then read to us from Matthew 25 I'll read first from verses 1 through 13, and then we will eventually come also to verses 14 through 30. But Let me read for the opening reading, verses 1 through 13. Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. because you do not know the day or the hour. Amen for God's word, and let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus. We long to hear his voice. He is the revelation of God. So speak to us now through your word. May we hear the voice of God speaking in the scriptures. Give us wisdom to know how to live as your faithful watchful people. Wherever we find ourselves, wherever we can in our homes, communities, workplaces, build those bridges. Extend the welcome of Jesus. May this word equip us tonight for the mission you have for us during the week. And of course, maybe worship you as well, and just have the word for our souls, grace for ourselves that we need. We pray this in Jesus's name. Amen. Well, we began looking last week at this second half of Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Often the focus of the Olivet Discourse is on the first part of Matthew 24 where Jesus describes the destruction on Jerusalem's temple. But he says a lot more after describing the coming judgment. He begins to describe the time of his return. And we looked last week at verses 36 through 49 where Jesus first describes in general Here is the nature of my return. Well expressed with verse 36. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun. He doesn't know when that day will be and instead cautions us to be ready. He warns that it's the kind of day that people will be unprepared for if they don't watch, if they don't make preparations, if they don't consider that the Lord is coming again, they will be caught unaware. And then Jesus in verses 42 through the end of the chapter, more specifically 45 through the end of the chapter, gives a parable depicting this kind of return. A household steward or manager whose job is to run the household well in his master's absence, but instead gives into debauched and irresponsible living. That servant is judged when the master returns, whereas a servant who is faithful, who discharges his duties, enters into his master's happiness. Well, tonight in Matthew 25, we are confronted with two more parables. So one at the end of 24, two more parables, and the first half of chapter 25, again depicting the Lord's return. All three of these parables are held together by this common theme of the necessity of watching and being ready for the Master's return. So we'll look at those two parables tonight. First, the parable of the ten virgins, which we've already read, and then the parable of the bags of gold. So let's consider first this parable in verses 1 through 13 of the ten virgins. Now, as we read the parable, you could tell the context is that of a wedding, and if you put yourselves in the shoes of the first hearers, weddings were big moments in village life. Again, smaller towns, smaller communities, not mobile like we are today. A wedding might be a whole village celebration. And so being invited to that would say a lot about your status. It would be a real privilege to be invited to the wedding. And it's something you would want to participate in and be a part of and join in all of the festivities. Now... As you read this passage, maybe you thought, you know, I've never been part of a wedding like this. This sounds very different from how we do weddings nowadays. That's true, and quite frankly, the details of the wedding, you know, exactly how a service or or a a celebration like this would work out, just aren't crystal clear from us. People try to study history and piece these things together, and all the details aren't clear. The text doesn't give them all to us. The background isn't 100% clear. But what we can make out, from this story, is that you've got these ten ladies, often called ten virgins, who accompany the bridegroom. Or maybe better it'd be a better way to put it would be they form almost a procession. So in our modern weddings, we, we think of the bridesmaids being with the bride. But here these ladies would form an escort, they would form a procession for the bridegroom as he comes to the wedding celebration. And you notice especially that it takes place at night. They have torches. It's actually midnight when the bridegroom finally arrives in the parable. Again, whether that was standard or just for the purpose of the parable is not immediately clear. But here's what is clear. That the parable makes the point of emphasizing, once again, the importance of being prepared. Specifically prepared for the unknown time of Jesus' arrival. And this parable will even emphasize the effect of the bridegroom's delay, how that affected the readiness of these girls and the resulting consequences for their enjoyment of the banquet. And as I've said, I think I mentioned this last week, that that may be a commentary on the fact that when Matthew was writing his gospel, Christ had not yet returned. You had the life and ministry of Jesus in the early 30s A.D., Most of the Gospels were written probably 30 or 40 years later with John being written last, maybe 50 years after the ministry of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is saying things like this to his disciples, but it's creating this expectation that the Lord is going to return very soon. He says you don't know the day or the hour, you don't want to be unprepared, so there's this eagerness, there's this expectation But time begins to go on and maybe people begin to reason, well, is he going to come? How are these promises going to play out? And so Matthew's got to write and and shape these parables in such a way as to say, don't let that delay fool you. Don't go to sleep at the wheel. Don't think that just because it wasn't quite as quick as we expected that now we swing to the other side and act like it's never going to happen. If there is delay, you must still be prepared. Of course, that speaks very much to us 2,000 years later, still waiting for the return of the Lord. So here's the overview of the parable. won't rehash all the details because it's pretty clear to follow the main train of thought. But you've got these ten virgins who are ready to escort this bridegroom to the wedding banquet. They all have torches because it's going to be at night. However, five take oil for their torches, and five do not. Imagine a torch wrapped in rags and dipped in oil. You need the oil so that the rags will burn. So to have a torch without oil is like having a flashlight with no battery. That is why the parable calls them wise and foolish. Those who take preparation are wise, those who do not are foolish. By the way, we're hearkening back at this point to the Sermon on the Mount, the wise and the foolish builders. Other language in this parable will echo the sermon also. So all ten have lamps, five have oil, five don't. While they wait for the bridegroom, he takes a long time to arrive, and everyone falls asleep. He shows up at midnight and summons the bridesmaids to meet him. So at this point, all ten wake up, and they attempt to light their torches. The foolish realize they cannot light their torch without oil. They request some from the wise, but the wise do not share with them. And if that throws you, like, well, that seems kind of selfish, again, it's a parable. Not every detail needs to make some kind of point. The wise will not share with the foolish. They don't have enough. The foolish thus try to secure oil, go and buy some, but while they're away... The bridegroom arrives, and everyone goes into the banquet. When the five foolish virgins thus arrive late, they are denied admission. The bridegroom replies, I don't know you. Now again, village life, big wedding, he probably technically knows them. But this is supposed to echo the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They aren't part of the true family. Why? Because they weren't prepared. Hence the conclusion of verse 13. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So what is the point of this parable? Well, interestingly, Jesus has been saying, keep watch, stay awake. But in this parable, all ten people fall asleep. So the point isn't so much that, oh, they slept, see, they disobeyed what was in the previous parable. Again, Jesus can tweak the parables and the details in order to make the particular point. The problem isn't that they slept. The problem is that they didn't prepare beforehand. In order to be ready for the Lord's return, one must prepare in advance. It's like the people in the days of Noah. You can't wait until the last minute to suddenly say, oh, I guess we should be taking this seriously. Now, as people have read the parables over the year, they've wondered, okay, what's the point of the oil here? Is there some kind of significance here? Perhaps the Holy Spirit or some other biblical idea? Jesus offers us no explanation for the oil. And I think that's because, again, the identity of the oil isn't the point. It isn't what they got, it's the fact that they either were or weren't prepared. Whatever that oil may symbolize, Jesus' point is, you better get it in advance. And so one commentator writes, Readiness, whatever form it takes, is not something that can be achieved by a last-minute adjustment. If you prepare in advance, then you can sleep Securely. So again, Jesus is telling us, keep watch. Again, these particular people actually slept. But the point of Jesus saying, keep awake, is his way of saying, be prepared. So, what then is the application of this parable? Obviously, the big idea is to make preparation for the Lord's return, to, to be on right terms with Him by faith, to be submitting all of life to Him. Again, we've been saying this throughout uh, these examinations of the parables. Is it that you're always in the state of red alert, looking at your watch? Maybe he'll come tonight. Maybe he'll come at 2 a.m. Maybe It's not so much that. Is when he comes and finds me, will he find me doing the things that please him? Have I put together a plan for life that is according to his will? And is it the kind of thing that he will approve? If so then you're making preparation, and you can sleep securely, so to speak, in the language of this parable. I do think another important application of this parable is the idea that no one can prepare for you. The five that were ready, good to go. In the the terms Jesus sets with this parable, they can't share. I know we're supposed to share, uh, but in this parable, they can't. And there is a certain reality that simply can't be shared with others in the terms of you doing the work for them or someone doing it for you. No one can prepare for you. We must all prepare for ourselves. I had a client when I worked at the bank when I was back in school, and he was a little bit of a prepper. And he would tell me some of the things he had accumulated uh, should the time ever come where uh, the doomsday scenario played out and he needed all those things. Now, he would explain it to me, and, and I didn't buy it. I didn't feel compelled to prepare as he did. But one time I asked him, I said, you know, Rob, you and I get along. We've got a pretty good relationship here. Should things go south, can I just come stay with you? He's like, oh, absolutely. So in my mind was, I don't have to prepare. I just need to be nice to the guy who does just in case I'm wrong. In this instance, that doesn't work. You can't just say, well, I'm on good terms with someone else who's prepared, so should things go that way, I'm good to go. Got to prepare for yourself. That is the point of Jesus' teaching here. Now, let me read the next section of verses, and let's look tonight at this third parable, the bags of gold. Listen as I read beginning at verse 14. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now once again, this parable illustrates the nature of of Jesus' return. He says in the first verse, verse 14, it will be like, he had said in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like. So that's the it here. Here's what the kingdom will be like. When I show up and manifest my reign fully, it will be like this. And just as we saw at the end of the previous chapter, we once again have the imagery of a master and his slaves. In this parable... Each slave is left with a large sum of money, and they are held accountable for how they manage it. Now, interestingly, no instructions are given when the money is entrusted. Now, maybe that's just to keep the parable brief and, and to omit unnecessary details. Obviously, when the master returns, they have a sense of what they were supposed to do. But the, at first, we see each slave being entrusted with a large sum of money, not just how much money. Well, one, as the NIV translates it, these are bags of gold. One bag of gold equals what a laborer might hope to earn in half a lifetime. So one bag, half a lifetime's wages for an ordinary laborer. Can you imagine receiving five? That's a lot of working capital to be entrusted to you. Maybe, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to over-spiritualize the details, maybe it's a way of saying, look how much God has entrusted with you. Look how generous he has been that we should be uh, faithful with. But let's ask this question, what does the money represent? Now again, the NIV renders it bags of gold. Do you remember the old King James rendering? Talents. And unfortunately, in English... The word talent, when referring to money, as the Greek word does, uh, also in English refers to what? Gifts and abilities. And so some have preached this as, all right, you know, you've got these different gifts and abilities that God has given you. You better be faithful with them. I don't think that's the main point of the parable. The only reason we think it's that way is because of the overlap in English words. But the Greek word simply refers to bags of gold. Not in any way to gifts and abilities. And so we should read this parable as we did the previous parables, being ready for the Lord's return. Again, if it's going to overlap any with gifts and ability, it would be okay that you're following Christ's blueprint for your life. I think we overdo it a little bit, though, if we say, hey, you have some musical ability? Well, you better play the piano at church. So let's not get so far into the weeds there uh, that we're losing sight of the main details. Christ says, I entrust you with spiritual ability. I expect you to use it to prepare for my return. So we could look at it as those privileges and opportunities that pertain to the kingdom of heaven and life as God's servants. Now, on a similar note, I want you to notice this. The three slaves receive different amounts. The text even says, each according to their ability. God gives to his servants different amounts of ability and opportunity and holds them accountable to what they are given. Uh, Luke 12 48 receives. use a similar language from everyone who has been given much much will be demanded and from one who has been entrusted with much much more will be asked in other words there's different levels of distribution in the kingdom of god but notice this when the lord returns the two faithful servants receive identical commendations The end of verse 21, you have been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many. Same thing in verse 23, you have been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many. God may give each person different opportunities, abilities, and levels of responsibility, but the reward for faithfulness is the same. It reminds me of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Some work all day, some work just one hour, but each receives the same reward. And maybe that's hitting you with like, well, that seems kind of unfair. I think this is the point Jesus is trying to make here, that I am gracious to my servants. And I don't hold, if I give you this opportunity, then you just be faithful with it. You don't have to go out and be faithful with the opportunity I've given to someone else. I think Jesus is giving us these different levels for our encouragement. As a way of saying, all I look for is faith faithfulness and those who are faithful will receive the same reward so how might we be faithful well again don't want to overanalyze the details but notice that the first two servants those who jesus judges to be faithful they received a 100 percent return on their investment boy that'd be nice to be able to get that wouldn't it five bags given uses it to make five more Two bags given, uses it to make two more. I, I wonder if we should see in there that their investment probably means they took on a little bit of risk. And that was something the third slave was unwilling to do. He feared the master's judgment, and so he buried the talent, or excuse me, the bag of gold, where it would be safe. Maybe Jesus is simply trying to say, following me, entering the kingdom, takes a little bit of risk. Don't be frozen by cowardly inaction and taking the safe route. Follow me, and it will be worth it. Now notice once again, same, time, same thing in this parable, a long delay before the master returns. Jesus is telling us, use your life, your whole life, However long it is, however many opportunities you're given, use it to cultivate readiness for my return. Form that blueprint, that pattern of life that Jesus approves. And again, if we're still wondering, well, what kind of life might that be like? Stay tuned till next week. Read ahead at the end of Matthew 25. He'll tell us exactly what kinds of things please him when he returns. When the master returns then, we find the slaves are divided Into good and bad. Two are faithful. And because they have been faithful, they receive more. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And not only that, but they come to share in their master's happiness. I don't want to read too much into the parable, but maybe we should imagine the eternal state, not as a place of just indolent. Pleasure. Oh, hey, work is done. don't have to do anything anymore. But maybe active cooperation with God in his purposes as well as enjoying his favor. I mean, Adam and Eve were to be good stewards of the Garden of Eden, to work it, to tend it. Maybe in the eternal state we can actually do some work that doesn't have all the frustrations of this life. Thorns and thistles gone and God shows up to walk with his people and we cooperate with him and work with him in new heavens and a new earth in the eternal state and in the enjoyment of his favor. The first two are told, you are faithful with little, now receive much. Now interestingly, the third slave, he didn't lose any money. Everything he got, he gave back. But the problem is, he did nothing. Why not? I mean... I don't know, maybe he saw no benefit for himself. Whatever I make, I just have to turn over to the master. Whatever his reason is, he condemns himself when he gives his excuse by saying, Master, I just knew that you were harsh. Well, Jesus uses his own words against him. If you knew that was true, you should have tried all the more to please the master by investing his money. You you could have at least entrusted it to bankers. Now, in Jesus' day, we don't quite have the banking system we have nowadays. It was only in its earliest stages of development uh, in the Roman world. We obviously didn't have any kind of FDIC protection for lost deposits. But Jesus is saying, you know, you you could have still entrusted it to other individuals, maybe money lenders or, or money changers, and I could have gotten a little bit back. That still would have been risky, but perhaps less risky than what the first two servants did. But the point Jesus is saying, I don't think, by the way, Jesus is saying, yeah, I am a harsh person. I'm going to be a harsh judge when I show up to evaluate my people. I think it's the way it's just saying, if you knew what I was like, you should have taken action. So the point is, inaction is unacceptable. And thus, this parable is about maximizing opportunities, not wasting them. To be ready. For the Lord's return is to use the time, however much time he gives us, to maximum profit, preparing and being ready for the Lord's return. And so we see this in verse 30, this warning where the worthless servant is thrown outside. There is a fundamental division between good and bad disciples, between the saved and the lost. And Jesus uses, this is again quoting a commentary, Jesus uses the language of ultimate judgment to warn the reader to take the parable's message seriously. So in closing, we we could see these applications. One, I've already given you one. Discern what God has called you to do. We all have different levels of responsibility. Some have more than others, some have less. That's okay. Just discern what God has called you to do. You don't have to live someone else's life. You don't have to do someone else's ministry. You don't have to accomplish someone else's goals. But God's given you a life, and he's given you gifts, and he's given you opportunities. So whatever he's called you to do, whatever opportunities he's put in front of you, do it, and God will be pleased when we are faithful. A second idea is, once again, Be prepared. Be prepared for the Lord's return. Know that he will hold us accountable. But again, not in an anxious sense. Not in a watching the clock sense. Just evaluate your life. Look at your life. Choose a course of life that pleases God. And let's say the course of life that you choose gets interrupted. God by his providence comes in. And what you thought you had planned isn't what happens. Then you search for the path that pleases God. Don't let that knock you off. The path of following the Lord. Say, all right, that came from you. So how can I use the interruption and the new life that results from it in order to be faithful to God? And I close with this encouragement. Those who are faithful receive more. God says, I gave you a few things. Five bags of gold, two and a half lifetimes worth of income. I gave you a few things. I'm going to give you much more. Those who are faithful receive more and more from God. That makes it worth it. I don't, there's so much I don't know about the eternal state because I'm still learning from the Bible and there's a lot it doesn't tell us. But what I do know based on this parable is whatever it's going to be like, it will be worth it. So keep going down that path of spiritual preparation. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your mercies before us. I thank for thank you for the opportunities you set before us. I think of your language there in Revelation that you set before the church an open door. Lord, just show us whatever doors you're putting in front of us. Again, I thank you for Brian's presentation this morning. It was encouraging to see him taking that that missional approach of trying to welcome people because of the gospel and introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray you bless him and the strategy that he's pursuing. I pray you'd show us in Roebuck as a church what opportunities are before us. What strategies should we be pursuing? How can we be faithful to you? I pray you'd show it to us as individuals. I pray you'd show it to us as a body. And, Lord, as we discern what you're leading us and calling us to do in another year together, Lord, help us to be faithful. Forgive us when we're not. Show us where we can be. Give us zeal by your Spirit. And help us to trust that you'll be kind, you'll be merciful, you'll be gracious when you return. And you'll reward those who are faithful. So thank you for your many mercies, and we pray even now and come quickly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's sing in closing hymn 188. Jesus, I am resting, resting. Hymn 188, first and last. Stand with me, please. Verses 1 and 4.